Yeah, the last uh, two or three weeks, I've been doing very little meditating. Been doing very little meditating. It's good to do that sometimes. I mean, it's just been like maybe once a week, it feels like. And that's after, you know, years, you know, close to four years or over over four years of uh, pretty much constantly doing it. You know, not always as not as not always as disciplined about it, but doing it just about every day, with few exceptions, for most of the last four years. And it's it's good when you do something for that long because it's like you can kind of pull away from it for a little bit, but you still have the muscle memory. You still know how to do it. You know, it's not something that you're going to want to do. Like if if you're wanting to get into meditation, you don't want to spend two or three weeks barely doing it or not doing it at all if you haven't been doing it for like a year like like if you it it goes back to all that cliche self-help habit forming you know that the whole like oh if you do something for 90 days if you do something every day for 90 days it it becomes a habit but that's that's true you know I, i don't know about 90 days I don't know if you can put an actual measurement on it, but it's just you do something long enough to where a discipline forms around it, a habit forms around it. The same thing would apply to exercising or lifting weights where sometimes you just go through a period, maybe it's an injury, you know, maybe it's just burnout where you're just like, I'm not going to work out much. I'm going to spend a week or two just not doing much. I'm going to let myself heal. I'm just going to enjoy not having to do that. But if you've been doing it long enough, like something starts to kick in that just says, I need to do it again. I need to get back into that. So you want to do something long enough that you can kind of burn out and it's not going to stop you from doing it forever. So that's kind of the approach I take to it where it's like, not that I've been doing meditation for 50 years. But four years, I feel like, is a fairly good amount of time to where I can kind of dip away. But the whole idea is to not worry about it, I guess. I mean, you know, it's it's funny because I was thinking last night about ideas like stoicism. Stoicism. And how the basic idea behind it is to be non-reactive and there's obviously a lot of parallels between Stoicism and similar philosophies and Eastern spirituality, Buddhism. You know, there's a lot of parallels between those. But the funny thing about Stoicism is people get this idea that uh, it means being really stern and quiet all the time. That it means being completely non-expressive. And a lot of times people are just trying to be cool when they do that. Like, yeah, it is good to have restraint. It is good to be non-reactive. But it's funny how like someone gets into an idea like stoicism and is just like, I just have to be really cold to people. I'm just going to be really cold and boring. When the whole point is that, you know, I'm not a stoic, but I mean, obviously I, I relate to certain aspects of it. But to me, it doesn't mean being quiet or stern all the time. It just means expressing yourself non-reactively. It means not reacting to everything around you. And that's like meditation, because the idea behind meditation is to be non-reactive. 
Like when you're sitting there trying to meditate, the idea is to not react to anything that crosses your radar. Like that could be a thought. You could be sitting there meditating and meditation really teaches you that a lot of the thoughts that come in your head are trying to get you to react. And even if you're good at it, even if you're good at kind of shutting your thoughts out while you're in meditation, they sneak in under the door like a mouse, you know, and these thoughts come to you and you realize that a lot of these thoughts are actually trying to get me to react. And you realize that people who go through all day, every day of their lives without any kind of disruption to their internal monologue or their internal thought process, they're basically constantly reacting to everything that comes in their head. And you think about people who aren't doing well, people who are having mental issues, people who are depressed, people who are anxious, especially anxious. It's because they have thoughts coming into their head all day that are forcing them to react. These thoughts that scream, react to me, react to me, please. And when you're meditating, you really see those for what they are. And all you have to do is not react to them. And there's some people where it becomes this kind of game to them where it's like, I shouldn't think any thoughts in meditation. I'm doing something wrong. It's, it's, that, it's so hard to not be neurotic about meditation. And I think this way a lot myself where I'm like, oh, I shouldn't be having any thoughts because you, you do reach that place of no thought sometimes. You, you can actually reach that place. And so when you don't reach that place, you're like, oh, no, a thought. Oh, my God, I'm not doing it right. Oh, you know, you start to think that way about it. And, uh, but the real, the real, the important thing in that is not to like be perfect and achieve some state beyond your own consciousness. Every time you meditate, the idea is to not react to those thoughts when they come. And that actually slows your thoughts down. It's when you react to your thoughts that they speed up and they start coming to you. And that forms anxiety where, uh, you know, Meditation also teaches you that like so many of your thoughts are hyperlinked together. Where like you'll you'll think a thought and something in that thought, like a memory or a person, will remind you of something you associate that with. Like you'll think of uh you know, a movie or something. I mean this I, I think about movies, but no, like let's just say you're thinking about a movie you saw many years ago, you'll remember like who you saw that with. And then you start thinking about that person. And then something about that person reminds you of this. And so on from there. And a lot of people go through their days, they go through their entire lives where that's never interrupted. Every waking moment from morning to bed is filled with just this endless chain of hyperlinked thoughts. And so many of them are demanding a reaction. Like, you know, let's just, let's say it's about a person, you know, or you knew it's like, you might think about something that person did that bothered you or something that person said, or you might be worrying about what that person thinks of you. So many people's thoughts are consumed with this stuff. So it's like, they're all hyperlinked together. And so many of them pull a reaction out of you. So many of those cause you to think something. They might make you sad, happy, anxious. could be anything. The idea, though, is that they're causing you to react. And when they're all hyperlinked together, your brain is just cycling through these things. And what you notice with people who are just consumed that way, they don't really think a broad array of thoughts, which is interesting. 
like they're kind of stuck on a few core things and they relate everything back to those like if if they're the sort of person who has a problem with their family or a friend or a coworker or a boss when they're consumed by that you notice that everything kind of comes back to those core things so it's not like they're they're anxious or dwelling on on like this whole world of thought it's like they usually get stuck on a few things and once again though it's a very reactive thought so meditation in a way is like training yourself to not be reactive to not let your emotions grip you because we see that so many of people's mental problems and not not people who have like a very clear clinical diagnosis i'm talking about the the mental problems that normal people are experiencing it's because there's just no interruption to their thought and you know people do this with drugs and alcohol i mean while i wouldn't say that i've i wouldn't say that drugs and alcohol i mean probably more than i know but like i wouldn't say that drugs and alcohol served a purpose where i was like trying to self medicate i think i just enjoy the effects of them and those those played into problems i was i've been having in my life but uh i don't think i was self medicating but with some people like and I, I hate that fucking term. I hate the term self-medicate. It's something that, you know, they used in clinical settings. And then that kind of leaked out. I mean, it just goes into like the sort of pop psychology that's taken hold of everything in our society. And you see where like people who read like pop psychology articles start to talk like they're psychologists and, and they'll be like, he was self-medicating. Like it's okay if Dr. Drew says that on celebrity rehab, but you can see where the public starts to talk that way. Like this pseudo clinical dialogue that the public started having around these things. Oh, is he self-medicating? Like I, I feel disgusting just using that term. Uh, but uh <laughs> How's this for a reactive thought? I think of the term self-medicating and I'm fucking reacting. But uh, anyway, just like I don't think of myself as like self-medicating. I think I just I enjoyed the the effects in certain ways. I enjoyed what it did to my internal processes. But you can see where like for a lot of people, regardless of like why they're doing what they do, drugs and alcohol like interrupt their thoughts. Not that they solve their problems, but they, they do put that person in a state in a different state of mind, which is something you don't experience very easily on your own. You know, a, a major tragedy will do that. Something very significant and life changing will do that. But there's a lot of people who go through their entire lives without ever having their thoughts interrupted. Like thinking about this older friend I have, he's a guy in his late 60s and him saying like he'd never once been drunk or stoned in his life. I respect that. Good for you. But it's like I also when I hear that, I'm like, oh, your thoughts have never been interrupted in your life. Like maybe maybe I'm assuming something. But this guy, you know, he's a very black and white thinker. I have nothing but respect for him. But I have noticed that he's a very black and white thinker. And I can't help but feel like never having your thoughts interrupted kind of leads you to a more black and white way of seeing things. It's harder to be objective. And I think through objectivity, you kind of take a step away from the black and white and you see things for what they are, which is, you know, multidimensional. 
And uh, I don't know. It's just it's kind of interesting to me when someone's thoughts have never been interrupted. And oftentimes, you know, if they have been interrupted by tragedy or they have been interrupted by something life-changing, it's more just like it puts you in a different emotional state than it does a different mindset. But anyway, you know, going back to stoicism and the idea of it being non-reactive, I think that's that's something important to all this is it's like being non-reactive doesn't mean not expressing yourself. And these people who embrace stoicism but think that that just means being really quiet and stern and off-putting and standoffish, I can totally see, like, I mean, I, I can be that way myself. And stoicism plays right into that. But the whole idea behind stoicism to me, or any idea like that, is it means still expressing yourselves. Like, you can still yap, you can still talk to people, you can still be, you can still have emotion, you can still react, but you're, you have a non-reactive discipline or a non-reactive philosophy, and that means when you do react, it's going to be that much more meaningful. Because isn't, I mean, for me, that's what's missing from a lot of people's reactions. Like when I see how reactive people are, and I'm going to, I'm going to make that word completely meaningless and useless. I'm going to use it so much. Reactive, non-reactive, reactive. But, uh, when you see how reactive people are today, and a lot of that's because it's not just their thoughts. They have a little reaction machine in their hand, and they're addicted to it, you know, because that's what a lot of a lot of what they're seeing, like whether they're seeing news articles, whether they're seeing tweets, whether they're seeing their friends, Instagram posts, Facebook. We're in a world of just nonstop, constant reaction. Anytime you look down and check what's on your phone, it could be a message too, you know, it could be a phone, like we are so connected and accessible to each other and we are so candid, like as rehearsed and deceptive as people are and manipulative, if you really take a step back, you see how candid people are, like it's amazing that people are are willing to be as candid about their lives today as they are. They're willing to let people into their brains and their lives the way they are through these devices and accounts and different things. It's really kind of crazy how exposed people are willing to make themselves. But in doing that, in this like mass exposure, this mass psychic exposure that we've been going through, through these digital mediums, it's caused, it's given people that much more to react to. Because God knows, like, you go out into society, you go to the grocery store, you're running errands, you're in traffic, you go to your job, you do whatever you do, there's plenty out there that's going to ask you to react to it. Oh, this this guy in line, he he was busy looking at the magazines, and he didn't even notice it was his turn. I had to wait. I had to wait an extra five seconds because this guy didn't realize it was his turn to get checked out. You know, there's all kinds of little stupid things we react, react to. Oh, you know, somebody, uh, somebody pulled out in front of me in traffic and started going really slow. You know, there's just so many things that are, you know, we have a right to get annoyed at those things. But we don't really have to react. We don't really have to get sucked in. But then now we have this whole other system where everyone is connected through these devices and accounts. And that's on top of the fact that like the the media has access to us to a greater degree to, to a greater degree than they ever have. 
You know, it's like we are so hyper exposed. And as a result, people are living in a place where all they do is react. It's just one reaction after another. It's what we're talking about when people talk about like the new topic of the day or the topic of the week and how people are able to just transition from one to another and forget that the previous one ever existed. Like in the span of three days, a large group of people went from being obsessed with the vaccine, obsessed with demonizing people for not getting it, to just talking about Ukraine and demonizing Russia. And then the the previous conversation that seemed to be the most important thing in the world to them up until like mid-February just suddenly shifted and it's barely been talked about since. It just totally shifted to this. And we see that we've we've seen that continually over the last few years. We've seen where people are reacting to something that has emerged right now and they're told that it's the important thing to react to. But it consumes everything for them. At that moment, that is the most important thing in the world. And that's the problem with reacting too easily. When you react too easily, that thing you're reacting to feels like the most important thing in the world. Which is why you'll like flip out on your spouse or your friend or whoever for doing the most minor thing. Like, I'm so sick of you setting your dishes on that counter. Every single day... I see that you set your dish on that counter and I'm sick of it. Like in that moment, that seems like the most important thing in the world to you. It's, it's not that important. Not that you shouldn't get annoyed, not that you shouldn't care if someone's doing something that inconveniences you. This isn't about being, being non-reactive doesn't mean being a doormat. Being stoic, you know, d- developing some kind of spiritual discipline, it doesn't mean not getting mad doesn't mean not getting mad you still are going to get mad at things but the whole idea is that by practicing restraint and not being in this constant state of reaction which is kind of like a psychosis and that's why our our, this this collective reactivity that's been going on with one issue after the other one event after the other you know that's why that's why you can frame it as a mass psychosis because it's it's happening on a large scale and it does seem psychotic it doesn't seem grounded it seems very chaotic and it is when you're reacting to every thought that comes to you that's an extremely chaotic way to live because every single thing coming from all directions could potentially set you off or hijack you but the reason to practice something like stoicism or zen buddhism any of these disciplines because a lot of different people have figured some of these things out in different times and places it's not that any one philosophy or religion owns these ideas that's the most ridiculous thing you know (laughs) it's you know the idea that like anybody discovered this and can claim it People have had their own interpretations and everything, but this is something that's obviously universal. But by practicing some kind of restraint, by not giving in, by not reacting all the time, it's not that you need to stop reacting or you should be mad that you react. It's not that you should be hard on yourself for being human. It's that hopefully your reactions will be that much more meaningful and truthful. That's a big part of it, truthful. 
Because if you're not reacting to everything, if you have self-control and discipline, if you practice objectivity and neutrality, what will happen is not that you can stay in that state all the time. What will happen is that the things that bring you out of that state, good and bad, happy or sad, you know, the things that bring you out of that state will hopefully be a little more meaningful to you. They'll hopefully be the things that you should be reacting to rather than every single little thing. Because that cheapens the, the meaningful and truthful reactions and expressions that you're going to have. And you should be more than happy to express those. Uh, and, you know, and it's not just negative emotions either. It's not just negative reactions. You can see we're getting too elated, being too pleasure-seeking. You know, you can see where that's a problem too. Like finding pleasure in too many things kind of sets you up for failure. You know, it's, it's one of the reasons to practice equanimity is you're not too attached to positive emotions. You realize that like the baseline that you want is kind of in the middle. It's the middle path, you know, the, the baseline that you want to maintain because you will be happy, but you'll be happy about things that are meaningful to you. You'll be happy when things genuinely bring you joy and aren't just superficial stimulation, stimulation. And uh, when you come down from that, you just come down to a, a, an equal place. You come down to the middle where you're not feeling good or bad, and that's not such a bad place to be, right, between good and bad. And then if you do fall down to bad, if something does cause you to react negatively, you don't have to worry about making yourself feel good right afterward. Because that's the, that's the mistake that a lot of people make when they're feeling down. They have a tendency to think, oh, I'm feeling down. I need to be happy. I need to feel joy. And it's like you got a, a whole other level you have to reach before you can do that. And even if you could, you don't want to bounce from the lowest depths to the highest heights. You have to adjust. And that's not sustainable. What's sustainable is, hey, things aren't going well. I'm not feeling good. I need to reach neutrality. I need to reach the middle ground. And then from the middle ground, I'll get happy again. I'll, I'll experience joy again. But you want to kind of maintain something in the middle. You don't want to be attached to you know, pleasure all the time, because then it's like you alternate between pleasure and its opposite, I guess, pain, I guess, I guess pleasure's opposite is pain. You know, you, you, you alternate between pleasure and pain all the time. And it's like, you don't have to do that. You don't have to be alternating between pleasure and pain. There's, there's a whole world in between that, that isn't so bad, but we kind of fear that to us. That's boring. Because people think their lives are boring often if they don't have something to react to. That's what makes it so hard to break the spell. It's why people don't want to meditate. It's boring. And, it'll, and, I'll, and I'll have all these crazy racing thoughts. I don't know how to do that. People don't know how to just sit. It's difficult. It's difficult. I mean, saying that I haven't done much meditation the last two or three weeks, it's felt difficult. You know, it, it's just sitting there is somehow a very difficult thing for us to do. Um, but, you know, th these ideas that I'm talking about, what they make me think of is the word cool. 
You know, I, I still use the word cool, and it's a self-defining word, cool. But what does it mean to be cool? It's cool. I don't know how else to... Because good doesn't really cut it. Awesome doesn't really cut it. You know, yeah, different. there's been different synonyms that basically mean the same thing. But still, nothing has really beaten cool. Nothing has replaced cool. No new sayings or anything come anywhere close to cool for me. And you think about like what it is to be cool. I don't know when that, that term first came about. I know it goes back to at least the 1950s. It could surprise me and go back earlier, but I know it goes back to at least the 1950s. But I don't think it ever became uncool to say that. It's not like the word neat. Like you'll see we're way back in the day, you know, generations ago, like young men would be like, hey, do you want to go to the party? It's going to be neat. But I only ever heard that used mockingly. Like unless someone was saying somebody was neat and tidy, in terms of like calling something cool, neat, by the time I was growing up, you only heard that parodied. Neat, dude. Oh, dude, that's neat. But there was a time where people used that sincerely, where people like said, oh, dude, that's, dude, did you go to the party last night? It was really neat. It's really neat. And that word became uncool. It became nerdy to use the word neat. But that's not true for cool. You know, I don't know that kids use it as much today, but to think of like people using that in the 1950s, like greasers using that in the 1950s, and then in the 90s and 2000s, you know, 50 years later, it was still just as cool to say cool. And what I like about cool is that, you know, it's almost a, a spiritual state where we can't measure coolness. We all, I don't think there's anybody out there who would admit it doesn't exist. Like, we all have some sense for what's cool, and many people agree. Like, as much as shit's manufactured and people, it's just monkey see, monkey do, following trends, you know, all that kind of stuff, there is stuff that's genuinely cool that a lot of people agree is cool. Like, speaking of greasers, that kind of set the standard. Like, that's kind of what coolness is measured against. Like, these rockabilly dorks today who try to look like greasers aren't cool, in my opinion. But when you look back at actual greasers, like these tough young men who wore leather jackets, jeans, white t-shirts, slicked their hair back, slicked their hair up, were really into cars, rock and roll, crime, like they were committing crimes sometimes, you know, they were, they were kind of, they were hoodlums, sunglasses, you know, they kind of defined like what coolness was, at least in modern America. And, uh... You know, I think a lot of people would agree greasers are cool. Like getting away from like rockabilly people, like getting away from like cosplaying as greasers, just the the real original greasers were cool. I mean, look at the Fonz. You know, the Fonz is like this wizard. You watch Happy Days and, and it's like, I grew up watching a lot of Happy Days reruns. One of my favorite shows when I was a kid was watching Happy Days on Nick at Night. And... The Fonz is magic. He's a wizard. If you actually watch that show, it's like, oh, oh, holy shit. The Fonz is a wizard. He he can pick up girls by doing nothing. He just walks by and snaps his fingers and like two girls 
will grab an arm, you know, grab each arm. He can like walk up and just like, like elbow a Coca-Cola machine and two bottles of Coca-Cola come out. He can fix cars just by like putting his hand on it. You know, he's, he's a magical character and he's cool and his magic is coolness. Cause like the way happy days makes Fonz is like magical flow state. Like the way, the way uh, happy days frames the Fonz is magic is that it's coolness that allows him to do that. Like this guy is so cool that he's magic. And that's kind of what coolness is. Cause like I'm saying, it's almost like a spiritual state. It's almost like it's Zen. It's, it's a flow state or something where it's like somebody who is, you know, it's almost like it gives you extra abilities, not, not just popularity, but like it, it puts you in a different state of mind where the things that you assume are impossible are actually possible. Maybe that's maybe kind of going out there, but that's kind of what it's like putting across in happy days and and you look at it too, it, it, you know. I, I bet you never thought you'd hear a Happy Days Lord of the Rings comparison, but it's like the Fonz is basically Gandalf. Like sometimes he's friendly with the guys. Well, here's what it is: the Fonz is basically Gandalf, and Richie and his friends are the Hobbits, and they act like Hobbits. They're like these goofy high school kids. They really act like Hobbits. They kind of look like Hobbits. They're like tall Hobbits. Next time you watch Happy Days, keep this in mind. Richie and his friends, like Ralph Malph and Potsy, like they're goofy, but they're they're also like the heroes. They're also the guys who like Fon like the show isn't about the Fonz. The Fonz isn't the hero of Happy Days. He seems like it, but he's not. Like the Fonz is actually just the wizard. Richie's the hero. His friends are like Merry and Pippin. Like you can you can just see it. Like Potsy and Ralph Mouth are Merry and Pippin, where they're like goofballs. And they, you know, end up doing cool things, though. Like, they end up, like, proving things to themselves. And Fonz kind of coaches them through it. And sometimes when Fonz, when, sometimes when they need the Fonz, he's not there. And other times he's there at the perfect time to save the day. Like, sometimes he acts cool and indifferent toward them. Sometimes he seems like one of their best friends. Which is exactly what Gandalf does in The Hobbit. Like Gandalf will be like, I have to go do something, and he disappears, and the hobbits, uh, you know, get captured by the uh, the trolls, and Gandalf like never comes for them, or he comes really late, or something like that. I don't even remember, but that's Gandalf's role throughout the Hobbit. Is he he's like leading these these hobbits on this adventure, on this mission. But it's like he comes and goes. Like sometimes he seems like they're friends. Sometimes he seems like an asshole. And that's kind of what the Fonz does with these guys on Happy Days. But just that idea of coolness. Like in that, it's it, in like a modern setting, like magic is coolness. It's something you can't measure. It's something you can't see. But it seems to have this great power over us. And we seem to have faith in it. We seem to believe it's real. And even though, yeah, people follow trends, all this, there is a real sense of coolness that some people have. Uh, And uh, it's amazing, though, that it can go away, too. Like, coolness can disappear. Cool things can become uncool. And uh, some things stay cool forever, though. 
Like greasers, I think most people, with few exceptions, would say, yeah, that's cool, and that'll be cool forever. The original greasers from the 50s and 60s will always be cool, and they'll always kind of be what we measure coolness up against. But uh, that's not true for everything. There are things that were considered very cool that are now uncool. And what's interesting, getting a little older, is like seeing some of the things that teenagers do, seeing some of the things that younger people do. You know, not that I know what's cool or that I really, I'm not Nostradami, like I'm, I'm not going to know, I don't know what the future holds. But you do cer- see certain things, like once, once you've reached a certain point in adulthood, like you'll look at young people and you'll say, oh, that's, they're going to regret that. That's not going to be cool in five years. Whereas you do see other things where you're like, oh, that is going to be cool. I mean, an example is uh, something that I, I believe is people are going to look back, look back at with embarrassment is streetwear. I didn't know the name for that. I didn't know it was called streetwear and a friend mentioned streetwear, but I'd seen that kind of develop. I'd seen where that fashion took place. And what that fashion is, it's like combining modern art in the worst possible sense with hip hop fashion. So, of course, I hate it. But, I mean, to be honest, I just don't even really think about it. It's not like I see somebody in streetwear and I'm like, fuck you, oh my God, fuck you. Fuck you for wearing that. Uh, It's not like it really, I don't react to it, okay? I don't don't react to streetwear. But the truth is, I think it's like just an ugly aesthetic. And maybe like, maybe it was cool for a few individuals to look that way. But when an entire movement is just people dressed like that, just like these globs of color, just shit like thrown together. You just don't get it, dude. Uh, The thing is, I do get it. That's the thing is I do get streetwear. Like I do understand kind of what they're doing. I just see it as something that's going to be very regrettable in a few years. Like, it's it's just uh, it's it's going to be something that people look back on and they're like, oh yeah, I actually I actually did look like a clown. But there are other things that that people do, or I'm just like, yeah, that that'll probably last. That'll probably live on. There's nothing wrong with that, you know. So it's not like I just look down on every trend. Like I think you see certain trends, and whether whether you're into it or not, you just kind of say, okay, that I can see where that'll have some staying power. That's not a bad one. But many of them, you're just like, oh, shit. That's a cool thing now that's going to become uncool. I can just see it. But, uh, you know, that idea of being cool and collected, too, because that's kind of what it implies. Like, even though you can't define the word cool, it's a self-defining word. It's something you can't really put into other words. It's something you can't measure. It's non-scientific which makes it kind of spiritual, the fact that we all have faith in it in one, in one way or another, that it's something we're all aspiring toward, whether we admit it or not. You know, but, but it comes from the idea of being cool and collected, kind of. Maybe. That's a part of it. Like, I think there's a reason why we say cool and collected. You know, it's, it's, that's kind of what coolness is. And when you think about a person who's cool, when you get away from trends and popularity and you think about another human being and you would say, oh, that person's cool, what you basically mean is non-reactive. What you basically mean is that person doesn't disrupt things. That person doesn't pull, pull things into their nasty orbit. 
Usually what you mean is not like when you say like, oh, hey, yeah, I met that dude. He's cool. You don't mean, oh, he's the he's the Fonz. He's the coolest, cool wizard of, of, of he's like he's like the Fonz. You know, you're not thinking like when you when you meet someone, you just think, oh, that person's cool. You don't think they're the coolest person to ever live. You don't think they're the epitome of cool. What you basically mean is like, oh, it's easy to get along with that person. That person's easy to get along with. That person has interesting things to say. That's basically it. You basically mean they're non-reactive, which is to say cool and collected. Uh, but, uh, but uh, I mean, I think that's a big part of being cool. But you can see where people try to beat coolness. Like it's something that most people never, never stop striving for one way or another. Like, maybe some people stop. Like, I'm sure some people stop caring about being cool. But you can see where, like, people who try to stop being cool, that's just an attempt to kind of beat the game. Like, that idea of, like, I'm through being cool. I'm through being cool. Oh, I don't even care about being cool anymore. Like, that's basically, like, a way of trying to be cooler than cool. Not caring about being cool is a, is a way of being cooler than cool because there's nothing wrong with wanting to be cool it's just that you can't force it you know being cool is natural but yet you also have to kind of you have to kind of decide to be cool too i guess (laughs) you just have to reach that state is what it is like you have to find out how to reach that state i mean i don't think of myself as particularly cool so i wouldn't be able to tell you how you reach that state but just seeing other people who I would regard as cool, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's uh, it's like they've reached that state of mind. And it's almost like, uh, well, here's, a, here's the interesting thing about coolness, too, is it doesn't necessarily mean you're a good person. There are bad people who are cool. There, there are people who are really bad people. People. There are people who are really bad people who are cool. It doesn't mean you want to spend time with them, but you can recognize, like, hey, that guy's cool. I mean, greasers. There were greasers who were criminals and outlaws and beat people up and were assholes, you know? But it's like, it's not about whether they're good people. It's, But it can be. If someone is a really good person, like, sometimes that makes them cool, too. Oh, that guy's really cool. Oh, that, that dude, he bought me a beer. He's cool. You know, it's like your standards might be, your standards for coolness aren't based necessarily on whether someone's a good or bad person, but being a good person can make someone cool, and being a bad person doesn't make someone uncool necessarily. So what the fuck is it? It's like a riddle. But I think it is kind of this spiritual state, and we don't even re- we don't even realize that. Like when we're thinking about coolness, like when we're striving for coolness, and it... it and it's something that kids do a lot. Like something I noticed that teenagers do and probably adults in, in this day and age is when they realize they're not going to be cool in a popular way, they try to make themselves as different as possible so that they can be cool in this new way. But usually it's in a, in a really kind of embarrassing way. Not that they should be deeply embarrassed about it, but it's just like you can kind of see through it. Like there's, a, there's a site where it's people submit embarrassing photos of themselves growing up. It could be when they were little kids, but a lot of it's teenage, of course. 
And some of it's really over the top, but I like the subtle ones. Like sometimes you see where like kids like bought into a really horrible fashion trend. That's just, just instantly embarrassing to see now. And when I, I first saw this site like six or seven years ago, and at that point, most of the adults submitting photos to a site like that were Gen X and older millennials. So I related heavily to all of the, the choices they made. Like that was my period. Like that, I went through those same things when those people did. And like my sister was Gen X. So I got to see like the different trends and phases of her and her friends, her peers. And then of course, I'm intimately familiar with that stuff, you know, from when I was a teenager in the nineties and early two thousands. And uh, this site, though, is great for that. Like when I found it six or seven years ago, I was like, oh, holy shit. I know all of these. I know all of these decisions these kids made. Even if I didn't do it myself, I know what kind of kid you were. I know why. You, I, I just know it. I know it better than anything on this earth. I know that that teenage period of like trying to assert yourself, trying to be cool, trying to make yourself different. Because I think a lot of the people who sub- who would submit to a site like this tended to be either kids who were nerdy and or alternative. So that that's going to like pool a certain type of kid. Like this isn't jocks being like, oh, here's a picture of me when I had a puka shell necklace in like 1998. You know, it's not so much that. It's more like a good example is I hadn't looked at it for years and I looked at it again the other day and I saw like a kid was like, oh, here's a picture of me. Like this was during my wristband year. This is during my wristband phase. And I remember that phase. Like I wore a, uh, a sweatband for a little while. Like I wore a sweatband around my wrist, just like on a day-to-day basis, like a t-shirt with a sweatband on my arm. And so I remember, and like I had friends who did that too. There were a bunch of random people who were wearing sweatbands. I don't know what year that was, probably 2002, 2003. And this kid, he was obviously about my age and went through a sweatband period, but like he showed this picture of himself and his entire forearm was covered in sweat, different sweatbands and wristbands. And of course it looked really stupid. It was just like his entire arm was sweatbands, like 10 of them. And I was like, oh yeah, that, that kid, I knew that kid. I didn't literally know this kid, but I knew that kid because there was always that kid where it's like, oh, yeah, the, the current trend is for everybody to, to wear sweatbands or wristbands. So there'd be that kid who's like, I'm going to I'm going to cover my whole arm in wristbands. It's like this is going to be the, the thing that makes me unique. This is the thing that, that that's going to make me stand out. And kids like that, they always gave themselves this kind of out where it's like, I'm just like a goofball. But it was still this attempt to kind of assert themselves. Like, that's a good example. Like, that that mindset of like, oh, the cool thing to do is to wear a sweatband. So that kid's like, I'm going to do a whole arm of sweatbands because, like, it's, it's going to be so uncool that it's actually cool again. Like, what I'm going to do is, like, take this cool thing and, like, make it completely uncool because I'm beyond being cool. But then... This kid's post, like the caption was like, I don't know why I did that. He's like, like this was during the, my wristband phase. I don't know why I did it. And it's like, I know why you did it. Cause it was just like, it was what people were doing. And you were like, I'm going to take it to the extreme. And people in the, people in the hallway will see me walk by in school and they'll be like, oh, there's the wristband kid. There's the kid with it who wears way too many wristbands. You know, it's it's carving out your own little identity, whatever. And it's, and it's totally innocent. I mean, like, I love that shit. 
I don't look at I don't look back at teenagers for doing that shit. I mean, like I look back at myself for wearing a wristband, for wearing a uh, a sweatband for like a year, and I'm like, what the fuck was I thinking? Like for some reason that still embarrasses me. But when I think about like like kids doing that, like I'm just like, hey, you know, that's that's what it's all about. You know, you're just trying to like carve out your little niche, but you're doing it with sweatbands because that's just what you do. Um, and there's, there's some that are really obvious and like, I mean, there, there's some, the ones that I love are where it's somebody who was a teenager in like the late nineties, early two thousands. And it's like a family photo. It's like, it's like their entire family, like their grandma, their mom, their dad, their brothers and sisters, their cousins. Like it's like a family reunion group photo. And then like they wore like their full on Malgoth get up. Where like they're they're there at the family get together in the Midwest and, and everybody's wearing just like normal people clothes. It's the entire family, you know, grandma through everybody else. And then this kid's just there, like in like a like an oversized like slipknot shirt with like a dog collar and, you know, eyeliner. Like I love that shit, because it's just like commitment. And that's what I notice about things then is is looking at these kids who would be called posers back then. Like you see these kids and the whole reason they're posting these photos is to be like, look at what a poser I was back then. But what I've noticed with that period, like looking at posers from the 90s and early 2000s, I'm like, they were so invested in being a poser. Like the thing they were posing as, like they were legitimately invested in it. A good example, because I like the subtle ones, like there's some of these photos people post that are a little more subtle. Like, for example, there was this kid, he posted a photo, or guy, he's probably my age. He posted a photo and he was like, this is a a photo of my first band's first show or something to that effect. And I looked at the picture and it, I instantly knew because it was this kind of chubby kid, not, not, not a big fat kid or anything, but just kind of like suburban chubby, what we call suburban chubby. Like a kid who, who just, he, he, he's, he's had a soft life. And he was like me, you know, a lot like me for sure in that respect, where it's just like you just grew up like where there's Doritos, Doritas in the pantry. You grew up and there were just Doritas in the pantry. Just like a pudgy, you know, teenage boy, kind of shaggy hair, like baggy jeans, you know, just that look. But he's in a rancid shirt and he's like very embarrassingly clutching the mic. Like he's trying to do something cool, like and and the, to make it even better, they're playing just in a backyard. It looks like they're at a barbecue. They probably are. So they're just playing like on the grass. They're just like their gear is just set up on the grass. And this kid in a rancid shirt is like trying to look like he's passionately singing. But what stood out to me is um, the drummer, because the the drum kit, the drummer just looks like he's just like the kid who played the drums in school. He's just like some dude with a ponytail. And his drum kit, like the, the bass drum, what got me, like my favorite part of the photo is his bass drum. This, he has a bunch of stickers on it. Just this like hodgepodge of stickers. A hodgepodge of stickers. And it's like there's a tool sticker, a misfit sticker, and then a musician's friend sticker. Like those are the ones that jumped out to me. There were a bunch of other ones, but like tool, misfits, musician's friend. And like maybe it's just me, but there's something funny to me about like the tool, like the tool and the misfits together. Like I don't even know what tool sounds like. Somehow, like I must have heard tool probably many times in my life. 
I remember being a little kid watching MTV with my sister and her friends, and that Tool video came on where it's like some sort of claymation guy in a dark room or something, and he opens up a pipe, and there's like meat trap. There's like a, there's like some kind of weird like liquid meat traveling through the pipe. Uh, so I still remember that. I, I have no idea what Tool sounds like though. Like I know I must have heard. Like if somebody were to play me Tool. And I feel like this has probably happened. I feel like I would go, oh, I know this. I've heard this song. But for some reason, there's a disconnect in my mind where I have no idea what Tool sounds like. I've had friends who like Tool. Growing up, there were friends who liked Tool. There were friends who liked Tool. But uh, for some reason, it just never, my, my brain never absorbs what they actually sound like. I don't have anything bad to say about them. I mean, I easily could. Like, I could, I could definitely talk shit about Tool fans. But in reality, I just I have no real take on them. I just don't know anything about Tool. But there is a, a Tool kid, and I knew them. And they were often kids who were. That Tool was a band that, like, if you were in your high school band, like not your own band, but like if you played for the high school orchestra, or you played for like the the high school jazz band, you'd also be into Tool. Like, uh, I had a friend growing up who was an incredible bass player. He could just, he could actually shred on bass at a really young age. And he got into some cool stuff, but he was always kind of stuck in that, like, tool thing. Like, he'd, he'd, we'd go to some, like, cool metal show together, or he'd get into something, like, cool, like, that was legitimately cool. Here I am using that word. But then he'd, like, hold me hostage and be like, no, no, but you gotta hear this tool song. He was a Japanese kid, and he'd be like, "No, you, you gotta hear this Tool song, like, or you, you dude, you just you gotta hear this Deftones song." So it's like he'd be getting into stuff that was cool, but like, it's not even that I have anything wrong. I have anything against those bands. Like I kind of do, but it's like in reality, I don't have an argument to make. I have no argument. It's just kind of they just kind of repel me. They always have. But it was just it was just, it was just like this friend of mine. Like he he played bass in the high school jazz band. He played in the high school orchestra, which is kind of cool. Like playing bass in the high school band is kind of cool. But he he was always like stuck, and like it was it was true for like any of the kids I know who like got good at instruments at a really young age. They were always kind of stuck in this like tool and uh, like dream theater. Again, I don't I don't even know what to say about stuff like that. But they were just kind of stuck on that. So this kid like playing drums, like the kids on vocals with a rancid shirt. The drummer's got like a tool sticker and a misfits sticker, which is that combination. Like I, I'll always love the misfits, but like combining that with a tool sticker, what I'm, what I'm getting at is it's just, it's just totally like non-aesthetic and kids do that. Like kids just throw shit together. It's like, I'm into tool and the misfits and like somebody who's been playing in a punk band for like five years or a hardcore band, like they're going to figure out that like you don't just throw a tool and a misfit sticker on your drum kit. Like, they're going to realize that those kind of clash in this weird way. But what's really great about it is the musician's friend sticker. That what was That's what was totally relatable to me. Because it's like this kid, he, like this is probably when the internet was brand new to people. He probably ordered drumsticks from musician's friend, and they sent a big sticker with it. And he's just like, I'm going to put that on my drum kit with my tool and my misfit stickers. It's just like not even thinking about the fact that like you're just advertising for this corporation, basically. And I did exactly the same thing, which is why it's so relatable to me. 
I think I had just gotten my first guitar and like had a reason to go to Guitar Center. Like I finally had a reason to go there and like look around and act like I knew what I was doing. And I remember getting like this free promotional poster at Guitar Center around that time. I was about 15. And it was just like this, it was like this Guitar Center poster. And it was all like photoshopped, like made to look, you know, it was all these different colors. And it was like a punk guy playing guitar. It was just like some punk dude playing guitar and then not from any band. He wasn't, he wasn't from a real band. Like they just got a model to like look like a punk playing guitar and then like made him, made him like all these different colors. It was like supposed to look all artsy. And then it just said like guitar center at the bottom or something. And I got home from guitar center and I just put that up on my wall. Like didn't even think about it. I didn't even think it was that cool. I was just like, got to put it up. Got to put it up. And you could tell this kid putting a musician's friend sticker on his bass drum, same thing. Like, he got that in the mail and was like, this is going on the kit. Like, meanwhile, if you were to see, like, a cool band play, like, even even like a, let's say, like, like thinking back about, like, when I was first going to shows as a young teenager, going to, like, an occasional punk show, metal show, hardcore show, grind, whatever the fuck it was that was playing. There was a lot of that stuff where I was living. And uh, you'd see a band play... But if they were like a little bit established, like not a big band in the area, but if they were just a little bit established, like if they had spent a few years playing music and listening to that music and all that, like you could tell they very consciously chose the shirt they wore on stage. You could tell they very consciously chose the stickers on their drum, on their bass drum. It'd be like one or two stickers of some band that was kind of like very cult or universally agreed upon that that's a really cool band. Like, those are the kind of shirts they would wear. Or they'd be, like, their friend's band or something like that. But it's like, you know you're seeing somebody's first show by their first band ever and they're 15 years old when there's a Tool, Misfits, and Musician's Friends sticker. Like, if you saw that band live and it's, like, a 25-year-old, you'd be like, oh, yeah, that guy's freaking retarded. (laughs) There's something wrong with that guy. But it was instantly relatable because I was like, I did that. I got a free Guitar Center poster with like a stupid, stupid looking punk guy on it. And for, I probably kept it up for a month or something. It's not like I kept it on my wall throughout my whole life, but I was just like, that goes on the wall. That goes on the wall. And that's what you see from teenagers though. It's like their identities are just like, oh, here's a thing. Here's a thing that's, uh, here's a thing that's related to something I'm getting interested in, but there's no discernment. There's no aesthetic. And that's what's beautiful about it, too. It's like you don't know. Like you just you don't know what's cool. I mean, another ver- another embarrassing version of that for me is probably one of the first times I ever ordered anything online. It really I think it might have been, to be honest, like I think I ordered some CD or, or CDs or something or it was I either ordered like a CD or a band shirt. And the mail order place sent me like a a couple free stickers and free patches with it. And one of the patches was a Bouncing Souls patch. Who, you know, they must be a ska band. I don't know if I've ever heard them. I know they're either pop punk or they're they're like that ska pop punk sound. I mean, it sounds like a ska name. It's I mean, the Bouncing Souls. Where the Bouncing Souls? There must be a ska band, I, I would think. They're somewhere in that territory, though. But I'd never even heard them. And like they and I was I was even into like cooler shit. You know, it wasn't like I was into cooler shit than that. 
but they sent me like this free bouncing souls patch in the mail by ordering from this mail order place. And I just like immediately put it on my jacket upside down. And then I put pins like buttons across it. So it kind of hid what it was. But like, it was funny that my first impulse was like, I'm going to put that on my jacket, but upside down. Cause I'm not a fan. It's not like I was anti bouncing souls. Oh, I, I'm anti-bouncing soul. I want to identify myself as being firmly against bouncing souls. Now, it wasn't like I even had a beef with bouncing souls. I just, a beef with bouncing souls. Uh, it was just that I put it upside down just impulsively. I was like, I have a jacket. Like, I, I'd started to put patches on it. I'd started to put pins on it. And I was like, this could go right here. And then I put pins through it because I didn't want people to immediately know it was bouncing souls, but I still felt the need to decorate myself with it because that's what I'm talking about. You just don't think these things through. You don't know what's cool and what's not. And I think that's changed a little bit, though. I think kids have a better idea of how they should do things now. You know, thinking back to this must have been 2000. Yeah, it was 2016 where I was hanging out at this bar that had a venue in it here in town and I was drinking with a couple people I knew, and I started to notice that all these large groups of punk kids were coming in. And I was like, what's going on? And someone was like, oh, they're having Northwest Hardcore Fest in the back. They're having hardcore Northwest, Northwest Hardcore Fest in the back. Uh, somebody told me that. I was like, oh, oh. But what I noticed about it, and I, I'd been to something like that when I was like 15. not Maybe not a fest, but like I had been to these like Northwest hardcore showcases you know and it was it was like a once again like a hodgepodge i'm using that word a lot hodgepodge like even at that time like 2000 2001 whatever year that was when i first started checking that stuff out it was kind of a hodgepodge of people who like didn't know what was cool like you could tell that the people in bands and like the people who were really part of the scene you could tell they knew what to wear and what to do, but there would just be like tons of young people there who were just like wearing the wrong, quote unquote, wrong band shirt, who who had the wrong thing going for them. Like, you know, you'd see kids who were still trying to look like really poor imitations of like early British punk. You know, you'd still see like backpack hardcore kids in like shorts and like chokers and walking around with backpacks. Like you'd still see a little bit about of that kind of stuff. But what was so different about this Northwest hardcore show, like 15 years later is I was sitting there like watching these kids come in and they were pretty young. You know, they were younger than I was. I would say they were probably like early twenties, maybe at the oldest. And I was like, Oh, like they all have the perfect uniform. It's not a hodgepodge. Like, these these kids have all like absorbed everything available to them and like they've they've studied they know exactly like there there are boutique there are online boutiques that sell all of the patches of the pre-approved cool bands you know it's like these people are walking in and there's like there's like more than one person with like a gizm patch you know it's that kind of thing like everybody everybody is represented by something that is considered cool there's not a kid in a Bouncing Souls shirt coming in. You know, there, there's not like a kid off the street who's like, there's a punk show? It's like everybody had the perfect uniform. They were adorned like exactly as they should be. 
Like nobody had made a mistake or a wrong step. Because so much of going through those phases 20, 30 years ago was continually taking wrong steps. Like getting, like being like, what the fuck? Why did I do that? Why did I think that? These kids, though, it was like, no, they they've read blog entries telling you exactly which albums are canon. They can order a shirt of any band. Like nothing is out of print. Everything is streaming online. It's what I've said before about like meeting younger millennials and maybe even, I don't, I don't know how many Zomers I know, probably none, but like definitely when you hang out with young millennials who are into millennials who are into music, you realize that, Oh, like they got into this at a time where you could stream every single album in a band's discography in a single sitting. Like you can get on YouTube and hear an enti- a band's entire discography, even obscure releases, even demos in just a night. And you know, I'm not trying to act like the old man here cuz like I grew up in a time where like when I was like really getting into music, the internet made things more available for me than they had any other generation before. But like I've said, like you were lucky if you could even get access to a band's entire discography online. Discogs didn't exist. At, at best, there was a fan site that tried to catalog all that. But you weren't really guaranteed all of the information you might want about a band. You might not be able to find their out-of-print albums, which, of course, are the ones everybody loves. You know, and a, a lot of... Uh, when I think back to like being a teenager... Like there was a store, for example, Cellophane Square, and they sold used CDs. It was in Bellevue, Washington. Sometimes they would have really cool stuff. Like I got Dark Throne, A Blaze in the Northern Sky there. Really cool find at that time because just where I lived, you didn't see things like that. But I also remember like finding weird EPs and singles by bands who I couldn't find their good stuff. Like I, I would hear about a band and I would hear that like a certain album was really good, but that album was out of print and I'm a teenager, so I can't be spending like 50 bucks on it, hundred bucks, whatever. So I would, I would like find an EP or something by that band from like later. I would find a later EP by that band at cellophane square and be like, Oh, I actually found something by them. And I would take it home and it would suck. But I would pretend that I liked it because I had invested. It was the only thing I could get by this band who I had heard was cool. And uh, I spent money on it. And so it's like, I'm going to try as hard as I can to like this shitty EP. You know, and that's just, I mean, I I still remember like, uh, I'd gotten the idea that like I wanted to buy an album by the band The Crown. They're like that Gothenburg melodic Swedish death metal style I was probably like 16 or something. I was like, I want to, I want to buy an album by the, the clown. I didn't own anything. I'd heard something. I had heard something by them that I thought was cool. And I was like, I want to get a crown album. I want to get a clown. And I went to borders books, which it turned out had a bunch of crown CDs. And, uh, I just, I didn't know which one to get. And so I only had enough money for one album. So I bought one and I went home and I hated it. I bought the wrong one. And it was I was devastated. I probably cried because <laughs> I was like, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to pretend to like this because that's what would happen. Like it was more of a gamble. Like even though I I was of a generation that started to have access to like Napster and Soulseek, that still wasn't really your primary way of investigating music when I was getting into it. 
once again, I'm not some super old man, but I do feel like I got to experience both worlds a little bit where, you know, you'd go to a record store and be like, oh, I heard this band was cool, but, and I'm a kid. So like, all I have is enough for one CD. So what am I going to do? I guess, uh, I guess I'll just try it and you can't return it. You're going to open it. It's not like you can return every CD you buy. So, you know, you buy that CD and you're like, fuck, it sucks. And what you might do is you might pretend to like it for a little while you, or maybe just really give it a chance. Be like, maybe, maybe it'll click, but sometimes it wouldn't. And it was just devastating because you're like, fuck, like that's the one album I'm going to buy this month. And now I hate it. I hate the one album I bought this month. And like, I don't know, there were bands I didn't hear their entire, there are bands that I loved and I didn't hear their entire discography for years. Like thinking about that band or thinking about that photo I was talking about of the kid with the rancid shirt and the drummer with the musician's friend sticker, like looking at that kid in the rancid shirt, like you'd look at him. And if you're from my generation, even though I looked like that kid at different points, but like you'd look at that kid and be like, that kid's a poser. Oh, look at the poser in his rancid shirt thinking he's in a band. Look at the kid with the rancid shirt thinking he's in a band. Uh, even though you'd, you'd look at him, like when I looked at him the other night, I, I like saw this kid. I probably thought more about this picture than anybody else in the universe. But looking at this kid, I was like, you know what? He is a poser. Like he's a suburban kid, like trying to be a punk, but he's kind of half-assing it. He's wearing like a, a rancid shirt. He's just like, he's a pudgy kid who looks like he has a pretty good life. And that's, that's great. That was me. I was a pudgy kid who had a, a good life. I don't hold that against anybody. There's a lot of there's a lot of pudgy kids with good lives, you know, who are cool. But uh, looking at him, he just you know, it's like it, it's <laughs> it just speaks for itself. You see that kid, and you're like, that kid's a poser. But looking at it the other night, I was like, you know what? Like, I bet that kid listens to his. I bet that kid has listened to his one rancid CD a thousand and twenty times. That kid's listened to his one rancid CD, and you know that it's Out Came the Wolves. You know the one rancid album that kid has is Out Came the Wolves. And you know he's listened to it a thousand, two thousand times and knows every fucking lyric. He's a poser in everybody's eyes, but you know that kid's actually invested. Because this is like the year 2000 or 2001, it's hard to tell, actually. That's the interesting thing is it's hard for me to tell, like... Between like 1999 and like 2004, it can actually be kind of hard to tell which specific year it is if there's not an obvious uh, context cue or something. But this photo is from somewhere in between there. And at that point in time, though, that's what you did. It's like even if you were a poser, you bought the band's T-shirt, you had one album by them, and you listened to it a thousand times and memorized every second of it. So it's like you see these posers and it's like back then posers were more invested in the things they were trying to be than people are about anything today. Like posers were more invested in their interests in the year 2000 or the mid 90s than anybody's invested in anything today. Like thinking about kids getting into music, like I mentioned, like people who are in their 20s that I've met today, like they, they kind of just take it all for granted where it's like, oh yeah, that band, like they know about really obscure shit, 
because they found it on YouTube the day they heard about it. And there's all this information. They know the band's entire discography. They know who all the members were on every album. There's all this data available to them. But the thing is, like they, they even treat the, they treat the music like it's data as well. And I'm not saying they don't enjoy it, but it's just like with the click of a button. I mean, there was one night where I was just like wanting to, because I'm, I'm totally fine with all the music on YouTube and everything. I'm cool with being able to listen to albums on YouTube. I do it. But there was one night where I think I just wanted to listen to a Slayer album or something. And like I I found uh, like, like there was a single video that was Slayer's entire discography. It was like nine hours or something, seven, nine hours. I, don't, I guess it was probably all of their full lengths. And I was like, this is crazy. Like with the click of a single button, I can listen to Slayer's entire discography in a row without even having to like click on the next link. Click on the next link. I, I wouldn't even have to click on the next link. Like it's all in one YouTube video. And it's like the idea of having that available is insane. Like, yeah, I was of the generation that started to get Napster and Soulseek. And that was way different from anything anybody had before. But it's not like everything was on there. It was kind of hit and miss. Sometimes it didn't work. Sometimes you couldn't find stuff. But with this, like with things being available on YouTube or, or just anything like that, it's, it's just incredible, though, that it's like you can consume that in a single night. But there's no reason to invest in that. Just like a poser 20, 25 years ago actually had to invest in being a poser. It actually took time and money and adventure. And it was an adventure. Like you had to go to physical places to find that that one rancid CD that you're going to own. You know, you had to track down a rancid shirt. You had to track down a rancid shirt. What are you doing today? I'm, I'm going to track down a rancid shirt. It was kind of an adventure, though. It was kind of a gamble. And just you just don't have to do that in the same way now. And that might be a good thing. Like, could be a good thing in its own way. I don't know. I don't, I don't see the positive impact from it yet, <laughs> if, it's, if it's ever going to come. I think it's kind of cheapened everything, personally. But still, like, I'm not going to say. Maybe I don't see... You, know, you never know what a creature is going to look like mid-evolution. Maybe all of these kids who are having access to everything all at once with no level of investment, like maybe that's just a creature mid-evolution and something good is going to come from having access to everything all at once. Maybe they're going to be much cooler in the future. I don't know. I'm kind of skeptical, but just something I noticed though, like, like seeing these kids, I'm just like, yeah, you know, being a poser... And what's funny too, like something I noticed with these, uh, these photos I'm talking about is like sometimes you see one where like the kid was clearly a poser in 1995, but like looking at it now, they've almost become cool with time because just like something can be cool and become uncool, something could have been uncool then that's cool now. That's kind of like ahead of its time. Like you'll see where there's like Zoomer girls who are Instagram thoughts didn't didn't think I knew that one, did you? Instagram thought, T H O T. I know it. I kind of know what it means. But there are girls who are like Zoomer Instagram thoughts who have taken on like new metal fashion now. My friend was telling me about it. He said there's like there's like new phase, and of course, like eventually, new metal would get incorporated into like hot girls 
who who post uh, thirst traps. Thirst traps. That's another one I know. Of course, like girls are posting like new metal fashion thirst traps because uh, enough time has passed. But like those people, like they look back because the thing is, like new metal was not cool. Like everybody knew that that way of dressing and acting wasn't cool at the time. I think even the people dressing and acting that way knew it wasn't cool. But it's like now people can look back in hindsight and be like, oh, there's something that kind of feels authentic. Here's an authentic Malgith. A Malgith. Uh, do, you even, do you even know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's an authentic Malgoth. A Malgith. Sounds like I'm saying something with a lisp. But that's kind of how you feel when you see these. Like When you see like a poser from 1992, you have a tendency to look at it now and be like, dude, that guy was fucking cool. Because it seems so much more authentic than anything anybody's doing now. <laughs> you know, that's part of it. Is it's like these posers from 1993, they're actually way cooler than the cool people are now. That's kind of how people feel when they see that stuff. Because it's like even posing was more natural then. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free 